Let me invite you to take a copy of God's Word and open to Romans chapter 6, please. We're going to continue a series that we're in through around Easter time called New Life in Christ, based on four of the greatest chapters in the Bible, Romans 5 through 8. We have taken a few weeks in chapter 5 and resume this study today by looking at chapter 6 of Paul's epistle to the Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I don't plan on preaching those four verses today. I've preached them more than any other passage in the Bible. Every time we have a baptism at Christ Community Church, we read and I comment on these verses, what baptism this gospel drama represents for individual believers and for the community. Uh, I encourage you to take seriously what Paul says here and the way he says it. He assumes that all of his readers have been baptized, an assumption that I'm not sure the modern church can make. And if you want more information about baptism, if you've not been baptized and sense that you should be, let me know. I'd be glad to talk with you further about it, but that's about as much as I'm going to say about this paragraph today. We pick up the reading in verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace." Our focus will be on the last paragraph we just read, verses 11 through 14. 
Well, thanks to the popularity of the musical Les Mis, one of the best-known episodes in literature is the redemption of Jean Valjean. This desperate ex-con takes refuge one night and is fed by a kind-hearted priest. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean steals the priest's silver and when caught in the act, bashes the priest over the head, knocking him unconscious, and then flees into the night. The next morning, the police bring him back to the priest, who miraculously covers for him. The police leave. The priest has a few words with Jean Valjean, and the man leaves a changed person, no longer a criminal, but redeemed by grace. A less well-known scene, because it's not in the musical, just in the novel, which is hundreds and hundreds of pages, so a lot of people don't tackle it, has Valjean, sometime later, steal a coin from a little boy. And here's the novelist's comment. Let us say simply, it was not he who robbed, it was not the man, but the brute beast that through habit and instinct stupidly put his foot on the boy's coin. When his intellect woke again and saw this brutish action, Jean Valjean recoiled with agony and uttered a cry of horror. It was a curious phenomenon, and one only possible in the situation he was in, that in robbing the boy of that money, he committed a deed of which he was no longer capable. Millions of Christians down through the centuries have discovered what Victor Hugo expressed here. New creatures in Christ, redeemed by grace, and yet we still sin. Romans 6, we see this truth, that when Christ died, we died. Our old self was done away with, buried with Christ. And now, the Apostle Paul says, we're dead to sin and alive to God. How can we live in sin any longer? And yet we do. Well, Paul goes on to say in today's text, you have to do something with this truth that you have died to sin and are alive to God. In fact, he switches from the indicative mood to the imperative mood. Now, I don't know if you remember your verb grammar, but the indicative is the form of the verb that expresses what is. I am happy. You like to run. They repented. The imperative mood tells us to do something. Be happy. Run. Repent. 
For five and a half chapters now, Paul in Romans has been strictly in the indicative mood. He never once tells his readers or us to do anything. And now in verse 11, for the first time in this long letter, he issues not one, but four imperatives. Count yourselves dead. Don't let sin. Don't offer. Do offer. And we're going to unpack those imperatives and see what we are supposed to do, we who have been redeemed by grace and yet still sin. The first one, in verse 11. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. If Christ's death was a death to sin, it was. And if his resurrection was a resurrection to God, it was. And if we have been united by faith to him in his death and resurrection, we have been. Then we have died to sin and risen to a new life with God and must regard ourselves as such. Count it so. Reckon it so. This is not make-believe, pretending what we don't truly believe. It's realizing what's true. John Stott uses this analogy. Our biography is written in two volumes. Volume one is the story of the old self, of me before my conversion. Volume two is the story of the new self, of me after I was made a new creature in Christ. Volume one of my biography ended with the death of the old self. I was a sinner. I deserved to die. I did die. I received my deserts in my substitute, with whom I have become one. Volume two of my biography opened with my resurrection. My old life having finished, a new life with God has begun. And we are called, Stott continues, to simply reckon on this. Not to pretend it, but to realize it. It is a fact. And we have to lay hold of this fact. We have to let our minds play upon these truths. We have to meditate upon them until we grasp them firmly. We have to keep saying to ourselves, volume one has closed. You're now living in volume two. It is inconceivable that you should reopen volume one. It's not impossible but it is inconceivable. Can a married woman live as though she were still a, little, a single girl? Well, yes, I suppose she can. It's not impossible, but let her feel that ring on the fourth finger of her left hand, the symbol of her new life, the symbol of her identification with her husband. Let her remember who she is and let her live accordingly. Can a born-again Christian live as though he were still in his sin? Well, yes, I suppose he can. It is not impossible. But let him remember his baptism, the symbol of his identification with Christ in his death and resurrection, and let him live accordingly. We need to keep reminding ourselves who we are and what we are. When sin whispers in our ear, go on, God will forgive you, and we're tempted to presume upon the grace of God, we are to say in the words of verse 2, God forbid 
I died to sin. How can I live in it? Volume one is closed. I'm in volume two. In other words, the apostle does not state the impossibility of sin in the believer, but the utter incongruity of it. He asks the astonished, indignant question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? To have died to sin and live in it are logically irreconcilable. So the secret, Stott ends, the secret of holy living is in the mind. May I put in a plug for our church's vision statement regarding Christian minds in the making? One of our vision sentences is we see a preaching, teaching, reading, learning church, Christian minds in the making, minds that grow in their perception of God's self-revelation in Scripture, minds that work out the implications of that revelation for all of life. Thinking, thinking. Now, thinking is hard work, (laughs) which is why Bertrand Russell said most people would sooner die than think. In fact, they do. But Paul places a premium on knowing. Verse 3, don't you know? Verse 6, for we know. Verse 9, we know. Verse 16, don't you know? And Paul puts a premium on thinking. The word he uses here in verse 11 for reckon or count or consider is the word in Greek from which we get our English word logic. To think about in a careful, detailed, reasoned, logical way. Count, reckon, realize, work out this truth that you died to sin and were raised to a new life. Grasp it. Know that a return to volume one, to the old life, is is not impossible, but it's unthinkable. A Christian would no, no more return to the old life than a convict would return to the jail cell. Some Bible teachers are inclined to say that this truth in Romans 6 is the silver bullet for overcoming sin. You know what I mean by the silver bullet? You can fight off the werewolf with torches and clubs, but the werewolf will ravage the village every full moon until killed with a silver bullet. In other words, that's the key. Other truths in Scripture are important if you want to defeat sin, relying on your brothers and sisters, the community, self-discipline, the principle of substitution that when you reject one, you have to fill that void with something positive. All of the Scriptures on this subject of defeating sin are necessary, but it's quite possible that what we find here in Romans 6 is the silver bullet, if there is a silver bullet. Absolutely key, this first imperative in the book of Romans. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Here's the second imperative, verse 12. Do not let sin 
reign in your body. Don't let sin reign. I have an expression that I've used sometimes with loved ones just for fun. You're not the boss of me. I mean, it's usually used in an innocuous situation. Can you come here for a second? You're not the boss of me. Give me a hug. You're not the boss of me. You know, the Christian can say without any joking around to sin, you're not the boss of me. Not anymore. Sin, as far as you're concerned, I'm dead. I died in Christ. You don't have authority over me. Now, do you know the difference between authority and power? G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said, if a rhinoceros were to barge into this restaurant, there's no denying he would have great power, but I'd be the first to stand up and insist he has no authority here. <laughs> Sin can exercise great power. It can bully us. It can pull us. But it has no right. No authority. So don't let it reign. You might think of it this way. You have a rightful Lord, God. You have a challenger to the throne, sin. There's a castle under attack, your body. And there are servants in this castle that can either turn traitor and serve sin or serve righteousness. And those are your desires. The word evil here is supplied by the translators in verse 12 so that you don't uh, obey its evil desires the word in Greek can mean either neutral desires or twisted evil desires. Desires themselves are morally neutral. But they can be co-opted by sin, and that's what Paul has in mind here, which is why I don't object to that word evil being added for clarity. Sexual desire is a good servant of procreation and marital happiness, but if sin captures it, it becomes a servant of the enemy. Desire for food serves us well, but if that desire masters us, it is sin's tool. As we see in the true story of a 14th century um, rule over a dukedom in what is now Belgium. Two brothers were contending for authority, the elder brother's name was Reynald, but he was commonly called Crassus, a Latin nickname for fat, because he was what today we would call morbidly obese. After a heated battle, Reynald's younger brother Edward successfully revolted against him and assumed the title of duke over their lands, but instead of killing Reynald, he devised a curious imprisonment. He had a room built in the castle around his brother with one door. The door was not locked. The windows were not barred. And Edward promised Reynald that he could regain his land and his title any time he wanted. All he had to do was walk out of that cell. The obstacle was not in the window or in the doors. The door, which was slightly narrower than 
the average door. The obstacle was Reynald himself. Being grossly overweight, he couldn't fit through the door, even though it was of near normal size. All he had to do was diet, shrink down to a smaller size, and walk out a free man. But his younger brother kept sending him delicious meals, tasty foods, and Reynald's desire to eat never won over his desire to be free. And some accused his brother Edward of being cruel, but he would simply say, my brother is not a prisoner. He may leave when he wills. And Reynald stayed in that room for 10 years until his brother was killed in battle. You and I are free if we obey our desires that have been co-opted by sin. That's our choice. Paul says, don't let it rain. Don't let it rain. So there's the first two imperatives. Count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. Don't let sin reign. And the last two imperatives build on those first two and so we can deal with them more briefly. Do not offer, verse 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Let me go back to that analogy. You have a Lord, God. You have a, a contender for the throne, sin. You have a castle, your body. You have servants, your desires. You can either serve well or turn traitor. But there are also weapons that the enemy can capture and turn to its own use, and that's the parts of your body. Uh, the, the military analogy is not my invention. I think it may very well have been in Paul's mind because the word he uses here for instruments is sometimes translated in the New Testament as weapons. Your hands, your feet, your mouth, your sexual organs, your brain have all been given to you by God for his glory and your good and they're not to be turned over to sin to be used as instruments of wickedness. Instead, Paul says in the fourth and final imperative, offer yourselves, your parts, and uh, uh, the parts of your body to God as weapons of righteousness. At least that's what he gets to eventually. That's what we would expect. Don't offer your parts as instruments or weapons of sin, but offer them as instruments of righteousness. But first he says, uh, squeezes this here in verse 13. Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body as instruments uh, in the service of righteousness. Offer yourselves to God. Several years ago, John and Sue Wazardi sang a duet here around Thanksgiving time. The lyrics of their song were these, appropriate, I think, to a communion Sunday these many years later. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who reigns above, whose wisdom is my perfect peace, whose every thought is love. For every day I have on earth is given by the king, so I will give my life, my all, to love and follow him. 
Offer yourselves to him. Offer your parts as instruments or weapons of righteousness. That's, that's the imperatives that we get. That's what we're supposed to do with this truth that Paul expounds in the first few paragraphs of Romans 6. Count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. Don't let sin reign. Don't offer your parts as instruments of wickedness but offer them as instruments of righteousness. For, verse 14, for sin shall not be your master. This is not a, four, a fifth imperative. This is a promise. Sin will not be your master. This gives us hope. This is not a shall not in the sense of command. This is, this is God's promise to us. Don't let sin reign because of what God has done, is doing, and will do in you if you're a Christian, sin will not reign over you. As one commentary on this text puts it, to tell an unemancipated slave, don't behave like a slave, is cruelty. But to say the same thing to an emancipated slave is both meaningful and necessary. It is simply saying, be what you are. You are no longer a slave. Live like a free man. We are called to live as free people because we have been set free by Christ. I can say to myself, you can say to yourself on the authority of the word of God, I'm not going to act like sin slave because I'm not sin slave. I'm not going to let sin reign because the Bible says sin will not reign. <laughs> because, verse 14 goes on to say, you're not under law but under grace. It's a little bit of a surprise. We might have expected Paul to say, because you're not under sin. But he says, because you're not under law. I'm not going to say a whole lot about that today because Paul will unpack this in the next chapter. For now, it's enough to note that living under law is part of volume one, part of the old life. Law was good at some things. It was good at showing us where we were wrong, proving us guilty, but law did not impart the power that we need to obey God. Grace does. Law life is sometimes reinforced by a kind of a bumper sticker or t-shirt mentality. Just say no. That's not very helpful. Of course we just say no, but we say no to sin after reasoned, faithful reckoning of this truth. We're dead to sin. Alive to God. You can sum up these four verses in four words. Be what you are. You can sum up the import of these four imperatives in those same four words. Be what you are. You are Christ's man, Christ's woman. Be what you are. You're new creatures in Christ, not unregenerate. Be what you are. 
You're dead to sin, but alive to God. Be what you are. You're living in volume two, not volume one. Be what you are. You might not be able to grasp all this all at once. Jean Valjean stole that coin from the little boy soon after his redemption. But in time, he grew more and more to become the man he had become. Several years ago, a judge in our country was administering the oath of allegiance to United States immigrants. I don't know if anybody here knows the oath. It might be very instructive for us to hear it. This is what he said they were supposed to agree to. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, and that I will defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by law, and that I take this obligation freely and without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion, so help me God. Substitute kingdom of God for the United States in those words, that's not a bad summary of Christian commitment. Before they swore this oath, the judge applauded their courage and determination, and among other words of wisdom to these new citizens, he said, when you have taken this oath and leave this room, Never forget who you are. Well, let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father and our King, thank you for revealing these vital truths to us in Romans chapter 6. Help us to reckon them to believe them, to live them. And thank you that you have done everything that was necessary for us to live as new creatures in the person of your son. Thank you for sending him at Christmas, your best gift ever. Thank you for unwrapping that gift on Calvary. Thank you that the death he died, he died for unworthy us. And that the life he lives, we participate in by grace through faith. And we ask that increasingly until the return of the king, we might live more and more like him, to please him. And it's in his name we pray as we come to his table of remembrance. The name of Jesus, the name above every name, and for his sake, amen.